Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys. Section 24. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys, A Midsummer Ramble Through the Dolomites, by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 10. Primiero to Predazzo, Part 1. The town of Primero lies partly in the plain, and partly climbs the hill on which the church is built. The houses in the flat have a semi-Venetian character, like the houses at Sinida and Longarone. The houses on the hill are of the quaintest German Gothic, and remind one of the steep-roofed, many-turreted medieval buildings in Albert Dürer's backgrounds. The curious juxtaposition of dissimilar architectural styles is accounted for by the fact that Primero, in itself more purely Italian than either Caprile or Agordo, became transferred to Austria and partly colonized by German operatives about the latter end of the fourteenth century. The Tedeschi, drafted thither for the working of a famous silver mine, took root, acquired wealth, built the church, and left their impress on the place, just as the Romans left theirs in Gaul and the Greeks in Sicily. The early history of Primero, how it became subject first to the Goths, then to the Lombards, next, A.D. 1027, to the bishops of Trent, next again, A.D. 1300, to the Scaligieri of Verona, then, A.D. 1315, to Prince Charles of Luxembourg, and finally to an archduke of the House of Habsburg, is but a repetition of the history of most places along the line of the Bellinese frontier. That the valley was at least twice or thrice invaded, and Castle Pietra is often besieged by the Venetians, is also a matter of history. It does not appear, however, that Primero ever became an actual appanage of the Great Republic, although the neighboring village of Transacqua, which is indeed almost a suburb of Primero, and is only separated from the town by the Sismone and a meadow or two, was ceded to and held by Venice in undisputed right for a length of time both before and after the date when the rest of the valley passed into the strong grasp of Austria, a grasp unloosened to this day. For Primero, so Italian in its scenery, its climate, its language, its national type, is Austrian still. We pass the frontier somewhere about halfway between the village of Gosalda and the Osteria on the Cerita Pass, but there was no black and yellow pole to mark the boundary, and we re-entered the dominions of the Emperor Francis Joseph without knowing it. So lately as last summer, the month of July, 1872, Primero was as inaccessible for wheeled vehicles as Venice. Whatever there may be now, there was no line of unbroken carriage road leading to or from the valley in any direction. Be your destination what it might, you could drive but a few miles this way, or a few miles that, and then must take to either the alpenstock or the saddle. In short, every avenue to the outer world was barred by a circle of passes, all of which were practicable for mules, but not one practicable throughout for even Caratini. A fine military road is, however, now in course of construction between Primero and Predazzo, so that a direct communication for vehicles will soon be established with Newmarket on the Boatswain and Brenner line. This road was already open last summer as far as the hospice of San Martino, and was in progress for some miles farther. Perhaps by now it may reach as far as the Val Travignolo. Another excellent road runs southward from Primero to Pontetto, the limit of the Austrian frontier, but there, unfortunately, it is joined on the Italian side by a steep and very rough mule track, which continues as far as Fonsazzo. 
From Fonsanzo, however, another carriage road leads to Feltra, and at Feltra one is in the center of a network of fine highways radiating to Belluno, Treviso, Bassano, and Trient. Less than ten years ago Primero was even more primitive than now. The daily posts, we are told, came in and went out on muleback. No rattle of wheels disturbed the silent streets. No wheel tracks guard the pavement. At night the good townsfolk went about with little twinkling lanterns, and hung an oil lamp here and there outside their doors. Things are not quite so Arcadian now. The letter-bags are carried for at least a few miles down the valley in a light carreta. The rattling of wheels has ceased to be regarded as a phenomenon. A gasometer has been erected near, too near, the entrance to the town, and the inhabitants are doing all they can to get a telegraphic wire in connection with Feltra. The town is very clean, cheerful, and picturesque. In the piazza on the flat, and in some of the side streets, for there are side streets in Primero, one sees many large and really good houses. They call them palazzos. Some of these are built over great cavernous arched entrances, and lighted by Venetian twin windows with ogive arched tops and twisted pillars. Some are enriched with elegant balconies of wrought iron, and on one door I observed an elaborate knocker and two handles in the form of half-length female figures of exquisite workmanship. The German houses going up the hill, the foot pavement of which, by the way, consists of squares of wood, are quite different. They have tiny windows filled with circular glass panes about three inches in diameter, and high steep roofs pierced by rows of dormers, and surmounted by fantastic weathercocks. The ancient first amt, with its quaint oriel turrets, loop-told walls, medieval windows, and rows of frescoed shields charged with faded armorial bearings, would be quite in its proper place if transported to Würzburg or Ulm. This curious building, which stands at the top of the hill just over against the church, was erected by the early silver workers, probably as a kind of fortified guardhouse, and as a place of deposit for their store of precious metal. Many houses, both on the hill and down in the flat, are decorated externally with friezes and arabesques of a simple character, while over almost every house-door is painted up this pious phrase, Christus nobescum stat. Our first day in Primero befell upon a Sunday. The church bells began ringing merrily before five a.m. and went on till ten. The streets were thronged with peasants in their holiday clothes, and in the piazza sat a group of countrywomen with baskets of crimson cherries, little golden pears, and green lettuces for sale. It was a gay and animated scene. The men with their knee-breeches, white stockings, conical felt hats, and jackets loosely thrown across one shoulder like a cloak, looked as if they had just stepped out of one of Pinelli's etchings. Some wore a crimson sash about the waist, and some a bunch of flowers and feathers in the hat. The women wore white cloths upon their heads tied cornerwise, and had the hair cut across the forehead in a Savigny fringe. Their voices were curiously alike, soft and deep and guttural. Looking in at the church door while mass was being performed, I saw the whole nave as one sea of white headdresses, and for the moment fancied myself peeping once more into the chapel of the Begunage at Bruges. It is a gloomy church, externally more Tyrolean than German, with an unusually high steep roof and lofty spire, internally of a severe, well-proportioned, thirteenth-century Gothic. 
two recessed and canopied state pews of old carved oak stand on either side of the principal entrance facing the east window and the altar and the armorial bearings of the silver workers are emblazoned again on the walls of the chancel having heard much of a certain antique silver monstrance or portable shrine for the exhibition of the host made of the pure silver of the primero mines and presented to the church by these same silver workers some six hundred years ago we waited till the congregation had dispersed and then asked to be permitted to see it a grave and gentlemanly young priest received us in the sacristy and the monstrance was taken out of a great oak press as old apparently as the church itself this curious historical relic preserved uninjured throughout all the vicissitudes of the middle ages stands about two feet high a light gothic spire in form somewhat like the spire of milan cathedral surrounded by a gilt cross and wrought into a multitude of delicate little pinnacles enclosing tiny niches peopled with figures of evangelists and saints our curiosity gratified we thanked the young parocco and took our leave whereupon drawing himself up in a stately fashion he wished us viaggio sano buon divertimento e salute a kind of limited benediction fitted for the dismissal of well-dressed heretics it was impossible not to be continually startled that sunday morning by the repeated discharges of musketry and small cannon which kept waking the mountain echoes round about especially just before and after high mass these came from the little hamlet of Transacqua on the other side of the Sismone, where the villagers were making high festa in honor of the arrival of a new parocco. Walking that way towards evening, we found a green triumphal arch erected at the opening of the Transacqua road on the farther end of the bridge, and another at the entrance to the village. The porch was also festooned with garlands and devices. All was now still. The parocco had gone to his new home, and the villagers to their cottages. We strolled into the empty church, and saw, by a little written notice wayfared against the door, that it was dedicated to St. Mark, as might be expected in a parish that had once been a dependency of Venice. "'The signoras have come to see our Titian,' said a croaking voice at my elbow. "'But it is too dark, too dark. It should be seen at midday, when the light comes through the side window.' I turned, and saw a shriveled, slipshod sexton, all in black, with a big key in his hand. He had come to lock the church up, and found the forestieri inside. Every insignificant little town, every obscure village that has ever belonged to Venice, has its pretended Titian to show. Setting aside the Titians of Pieve de Cadore, which are unquestionably genuine, and one at Zoppe, of which I shall have to tell by and by, there are dozens of others scattered through the country, which it would be flattery to describe even as copies. There was one to be seen the other day, for instance, at Sensenigi, but having heard that it was more than doubtful, we preferred resting in the shelter of the albergo to toiling up to the church in the broiling sunshine. The altarpiece at Transacqua is an ideal portrait of St. Mark, only the head and hands of which, however, are claimed as the work of Titian. It is said to have been presented to the church by one of the doges of Venice. It looks a poor thing, seen thus in the gathering dusk, but the light is so bad that one may as well give its authenticity the benefit of the doubt. End of section 24